This is Medicine on the Frontier, a unique expeditions podcast hosted by Luke Whittle-Gillard and Matt Hans. Well, hello and welcome back to another episode of Medicine on the Frontier. I'm your host, Luke Whittle-Gillard, an expedition medic and photojournalist, and I'm joined by my co-host, Matt Howes, who is a survival expert, expedition leader, and the co-founder of Unique Expeditions. Matt, how you doing, buddy? Really good, buddy. What's coming up on today's episode? Matt, I'm really excited about this episode because it's somewhere that I really want to go to as well. We have Dr. Rebecca Boys joining us after she's just returned from the British Antarctic Survey Medical Unit working on Antarctica. It's a pretty cool place. It's very remote, obviously. And she's going to be telling us about how she got down there, what life is actually like down there, and what it's like coming back to the modern world after being down there for 18 months. So without further ado, let's explore medicine on the frontier. Medic! Well, hello, Rebecca. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. You prefer to be called Becky, so we're going to call you Becky. Uh, But I'm still getting over the fact that you've just come back from spending 18 months in Antarctica, a place I've always wanted to go. I'm hoping to go there very soon. but yeah, welcome back. Welcome back to civilization. Welcome back to the modern world. We can't wait to hear all about it. Uh, but it's so great to have you here. Thank you very much. It's nice to be on the podcast and chat to you guys. Uh, it's our pleasure to have you here. You know, Matt and I were talking, obviously, Matt uh, lives in, in Norway in the Arctic Circle. And we were saying how cool it would be to sort of compare what it would be like to, to be in the high north versus the south. Uh, both polar regions, but both very different. So tell us, Becky, what's your background? How did you, or why did you even get into expedition medicine? And then how did you get down to Antarctica? Uh, It's a question I asked myself a lot when I ended up there, actually. Um, I have always had a long-standing interest in pre-hospital medicine. So um, back in uh, medical school, tried to find ways I can sort of do hospital so I um, actually did my elective out in Johannesburg to learn more trauma medicine and that was definitely uh, eye-opening shall we say Uh, a lot of gunshots a lot of stabbings a lot of burns road traffic accidents that's where I learned my sort of basics of trauma care and then I also was lucky enough to do an observership with Essex and Hotshire Air Ambulance they were an absolutely phenomenal team really really lovely and it was great to get an insight into what they they did um a lot of this started when i was also in uh, st john ambulance so i wanted to see patients a bit more early on the university i was at was very academic and um you weren't seeing patients until your clinical years towards the end so i thought this is a great way to sort of go out and meet people and Learn, learn skills that doctors don't often do. Like, when was the last time you saw a doctor do a bandage, for example? Doctors doing bandages? No, they don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, they don't. They're terrible at it, usually. Uh, so that, that really gave me a great set of sort of first aid skills, really. And so that's kind of stemmed this love of pre-hospital medicine. It must have been wildly different. You know, I was going to go to South Africa for my elective because it is somewhere where if you want to learn how to do trauma skills, you know, that's the place to do it. But sadly, COVID got in the way of that. But, you know, compared to working on a a British air ambulance unit to doing trauma in South Africa, it must have been wildly different. Uh, Wildly different, yet similar in the same way. Everyone's trying to achieve really excellent standards of good care, basic care. 
Um, and it's still the same algorithm, still the same approach, really. Just one had more resources than the other and could sort of tailor their care a bit better in that respect. Um, the trauma unit in South Africa was very interesting because it had such a different setup from the UK. So here we have your patient is picked up by your paramedic, they come into A&E, and there they're dealt with the A&E doctors usually, and if they're really, really sick, the anaesthetists get involved or ICU might get involved, and maybe the trauma surgeons as well. Whereas out there, the whole trauma unit is led by trauma surgeons from start to finish. They'll see the patient as soon as they're through those doors, they'll do everything in the recess, they'll then take them to theatre, um, and then they'll look after them on their own trauma ward and even help with their rehab. So they're there from start to finish with the patient's journey, which is really interesting to see. But it becomes their bread and that butter is. as well. <laughs> they're just so used to dealing with all of it. It sounds like a baptism by fire, you know, imagine doing that. Yeah, it really it really does. I mean, actually, when you when you kind of mentioned that, it dropped it in. Um, you know, we were here to talk about the Antarctic, but I think that was... Um, equally a medicine on a frontier to some degree um you're not the first person i've spoken to who's who's been there. i think i could be wrong luke did stuart go out to um yes yeah, so stuart was actually in, in cape town he was working in the cape flats uh which you know, yeah, Japan, that was at cape where it is you know one of the most yeah. dangerous places in south africa uh, a lot of trauma a lot of uh violent injuries and you know he um he saw a lot of stuff and it was, and it was great training but also you know you've got to think about mm -hmm. Um, you know the situation that those people are in and it reminds me of you know hearing you Becky talk about this but also hearing the stories of Stuart it reminds me of a book called The Bang Bang Club uh, which if either of you have read it it's, it's a great reading no. if you haven't you're gonna have to elaborate on your own now sorry <laughs> so the Bang Bang is what South Africans called a lot of the fighting during apartheid and the Bang Bang Club were a group of four photojournalists which were operating in South Africa uh, in and around the townships. It's a great book. Uh, they made a movie out of it and the, the movie's pretty good as well. But the book's a lot better. But you just hear these stories of, of all these victims of, of mob violence and and yeah. just killings of, of people that were completely innocent and had nothing to do with what was going on. Uh, it's a very good read. It's It sort of shows you the realities of of what violence is, uh, whether that's uh, civil violence like it was in South Africa or any of the wars that have been you know, conducted throughout time. It is the ordinary people which are the victims. Uh, but if you want to learn trauma skills, you know, that's where a lot of people go. They go to South Africa. But Becky, how did you feel about it? Because we're going to talk about recommendations for people that want to go to South Africa. Having done it, would you recommend that people go to South Africa because my friend's just come back and he was in Johannesburg and he said that the emotional toll was quite high you know what you're seeing is just not what you see in the UK and you can be asked to do things that also are not within your scope of practice in the UK oh I think that's a very big question a slightly controversial question I think it's an amazing place to learn trauma skills as you say that they, they get seeing so much even just in one shift I think there was one night shift that I was there and they had two thoracotomies like you, mm. you, you will see a lot and another shift we had about four people needing a chest drain within the space of half an hour and they will get you hands-on and you will do those skills but then uh, part of the system is corrupt you pay a lot of money 
to do that and you wonder where yeah. that money goes i mean we were told that um the money would help subsidize their own medical students to do their own medical electives and it was always a bit like i'm sure a bit unclear as to whether that was the case or wasn't the case um and you wonder how much you're taking away from the skills of possibly their own students there although their own students there are absolutely phenomenal for the level they are compared with a similar level back in the uk they really have to learn through almost the baptism of fire uh the yeah. training is so intense and they really get stuck in from such an early stage so it, it's a tricky one i i would if i could go back as a doctor i think i'd pick up a lot more than i did as a medical student mm. i certainly learned a lot there yeah, going back would be interesting. Yeah, I bet. I bet it would. It's um. I mean, we talk a lot um when we chat with other people about this kind of affirmation of skill set, and that's that's really really what you achieved by going there. As much as the you know the situation around it could have been better, or could have been a little bit different. Um, what you got from that was something that will uh, that will set you ahead as you move forward. Um, and to have those experiences. So it is. It's it's a it's always a tricky uh, recommendation to give because it's a it's a difficult thing to do um, because it's it's a very intensive. Uh, we can use that baptism by fire because it really is. Um, especially when you've done very little kind of trauma medicine before to that degree, um, and drop yourself in that situation for a period of time. Um, I can imagine that'd be pretty testing for everybody. And equally, some people are going to find that emotionally harder than others. Um, uh, as is with humans. Um, there was a lot of people mm. that got uh, needle stick injuries and out there needle stick is potentially has far more consequences than it would back in the UK. So it's mm. just having that at the back of your head is it's not without its risk. How how was it living there and um, and just, just being there? I mean, how long were you in um, Johannesburg? Uh, so I was there for six weeks um, yeah, okay. and then the last two weeks I went travelling and went to see Cape Town and bits more of South Africa itself. But living in Johannesburg was very different, very interesting. We were in a compound where there was barbed wire on the top of very high walls. You had an electronic gate that closed behind you as soon as you were inside. Um, when you left, you had to lock the car doors and drive out of the complex, make sure that the gate shut behind you and no one had snuck in. You couldn't stop at red lights, um, particularly at night time. You sort of just slow enough to check there was nothing coming the other way and then you go through because mm. that's when the the risk that you get held up yeah. at one point so yeah uh, no yeah, it's you... um i mean we've, we've we've done quite a few um with quite a few expeditions to namibia and things and they are the areas of, of, of southern africa are like that when you when you arrive um you have to remember you have an awful lot more to give than other people who who come past um and you have a value and a, a big juicy price tag on your vehicle and your equipment and yourself um and coming from here you know where i live i can park my car at the airport with the keys in the ignition and disappear for four weeks and come home and all the things and the car are still where they were when i left and i can drive them home to the house that was left open with things outside and because we have, there is, there's nothing happens here. Um, so it's a real, it's a real juxtaposition for us when we, when we travel. Um, and I have to literally kind of switch the expedition mode on when I leave the house just to restart everything again. Because otherwise I forget you, you get so complacent living somewhere like this. Um, it's, uh, it's wild. However, I wouldn't say 
I wouldn't say let all of that put you off because I did also have one of my best nights out in Johannesburg as well. <laughs> <laughs> so um, if you know the right areas to go, the right people to look out for you, it, it can be an incredible city. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, so let's get a bit colder then. Um, how on earth, lady? I mean, I, I'm not medical. Um, I've been a, a wilderness instructor for uh, too long. Um, how on earth do you get a job as the Antarctic doc? Is that just a, a find me jobs page and someone just puts it up and you just send your CV? How on earth does this work? It was obviously penguin mail. Like penguin mail. <laughs> yeah. uh, so the jobs actually advertising, uh, well, when I was applying BMJ job, uh, it came up around about October I didn't see it actually a friend of mine was like oh you keep going off to mountainous places and hiking up mountains and they're very adventurous this job sounds like it's for you uh, I sent me this application unfortunately they only saw it the day before the deadline so I had a manic sort of panic trying to oh. put this application but actually I kind of recommend it having a deadline of the next day meant that you didn't overthink <laughs> it you just put some stuff to paper this is uh, and so yeah <laughs> So I stuck in this application thinking, oh, I'm never going to hear back from them. I'd always, I'd had a vague idea to do the job. Um, I'd heard someone speak about it a long time ago, but I'd had this assumption that oh, you must be really senior, probably a consultant in order to go to the ends of the earth and um, apply for this job. And I was actually working with Clara, who had done the job previously. And uh, she just said, no, that's not the case at all. Actually, they, they don't want that because by the time you get to being a consultant, often you're far too specialised. And when you're down uh, in the south and on the ice, they, they need someone who can deal with a little bit of anything and everything because you have no idea what's going to turn up at your surgery door. So I, I took a punt, put in an application, and suddenly I got an interview. I thought, oh, oh, this might actually happen. I should probably <laughs> do a bit more prep. <laughs> And uh, had the interview Fantastic. with them. <laughs> they put you yeah. on the boat already. Goodbye. See you later. See you in two years. You ain't coming back. Yeah. <laughs> desperately, tr desperately trying to remember what you wrote on the application. <laughs> and that's where 12 I, hours. I literally the... ended my application with, I love penguins. <laughs> that was it. I got to the point where I was really delirious from sleep deprivation. It was two in the morning. I was like, that's it. And apparently it worked <laughs> but that's what you need to say in your applications obviously you know i love penguins but you know there's so many different types i don't know how you choose which type of penguin you say is your favorite uh maybe you've you've got a favorite already so i'm not sure if it's all a big secret but becky can you explain to us a bit about the selection process and how basmu actually choose their doctors and what happens once you put your application in uh, so the application is mostly a statement of why you want to go and also that you've thought about the realities of going as I say it's a very long time to be going for and so and it's the ends of the earth really <laughs> so it's quite a harsh place that you're going and in order to assess that a bit further they then call you for interview so they shortlist to about nine ten people each year and they'll interview you they really want to know whether you're going to be a person that's going to fit in down there they're, mm. they're sending you away you can't come home in that time. It's not like you just pop down, pop back. You're, you're away for that whole time and you need to be able to get on with a huge mix of people. 
there's there's not just scientists down there there's a lot of other people from different backgrounds the the trades people you need plumbers you need sparkies the electricians sorry you need field guides you need all sorts to run a base and so you have to be someone that's going to be able to get on with those people and and be someone that's approachable to them when they need your help or even just a shoulder to cry on when it's the depth like, like the deep dark depths of polar winter really mm. so that's kind of what they want to know from the interview how did you feel when you wrote that application with your statement of intent how did you how real in reality was that statement of intent when you got there how did how did your kind of anticipation of what being away for 18 months in this entrenched camp with many many random people from all walks of life how did the reality kind of match against uh, what you assumed it would be when you wrote that late night application oh um i think i don't think the reality ever properly hits home until you're actually there uh, and then the more you are there, the more you sort of get sucked into this bubble and you actually feel very disconnected from the real world. Uh, and you feel further and further away from everybody. And, and that's really nice in some ways and not so nice in others. It, it kind of varies throughout the year, really. Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming long, you know, my, my experience of long um, times away from the military with operational tours and things, and, and they were six, seven months, which is long enough. It, it's an awfully long time to be away. Um, but it is you do, you do you're right that bubble you definitely descend into this kind of protective bubble everyone's in the same boat and we're all here together um, and we just have to it's almost cult-like you kind of remove yourself from the real world and um, and become a member of this weird weird group of humans that kind of inhabit a strange place on earth um, I mean can you see yourself I, I mean it is from, from, I mean, I'm a father. I have four children now, far too many. Um, the thought he loves of them all daily. yeah, I mean, literally, I have been awake since four <laughs> o'clock this morning with a small child using me as a sofa. So, um, I so this kind of work isn't really ideal for people who are. Uh, I mean, I guess again, you be a, a specialist, you, you you move on, you've got you more specialised. But also, the further we develop through life, the more difficult these kind of jobs are to take. You know, once we have partners and children and houses, things that have to continue. Um, can you see yourself doing something like this again? Are you going to be the, the next doctor on the, the, the first Mars expedition? I mean, how, how wild are you when it comes to remote medicine? I think so for this job, I was very lucky in that I didn't have any ties or commitments. It, it came at a perfect point in life. I certainly do want to do more expeditions, maybe not quite as long as that one. That one was pretty long, <laughs> still kind of recovering a little bit. Um, possibly not Mars either. I personally really like the planet we're on. I think I, it has a lot going for it. <laughs> so yeah. I want to explore more of this world rather than go to another one that probably doesn't have a lot on it. Uh, no. So yeah it, it it does get it does get tricky and i know some of my other doctors have found that other basmi doctors have found that a bit difficult when they've got partners back home and it can put a lot of stress on people's relationships and so and that's part of why they have this interview process to just see that you've at least thought about it and you understand that you are going away for a very very long time yeah yeah i mean it, it is it's certainly um so I guess I mean I really want to see. Um, I have a million questions to ask you. You're a very interesting person. Um, but let's let's focus in a little bit on Antarctica then. Um, 
give me your your highlights and, and low times of your your 18 months what were the the, the things that really stick out if it was a, a particular work situation or or anything and equally those kind of the worst bits of being there oh that's a tough question when it was a whole 18 months worth of adventure yeah it is um, yeah I, <laughs> I was also very lucky in that a lot of the Basmi doctors get deployed to one role so they're either in the sub-antarctic island of south georgia or they go as the ship's doctor on the rss sir david attenborough or they are at brodera which is uh bass or british antarctic surveys biggest research station um, down at the bottom of the peninsula of Antarctica. Now, when I went, it was COVID times and we had a doctor dropout. So it meant that we were one short and they couldn't just input someone at the last minute. So I was very fortunate and I got to spend my first summer season at South Georgia. I then spent a stint on the ship and then that took me all the way down to Rothera where I spent polar winter and finally the summer. So I got to see each little different a taste of each different job and that was really really interesting so I probably have a lot of highlights and bad points of each because they're such different environments to be in yeah well let's go one of each that's pretty good because we I mean this this job is as you say up until three let's let's have one of each let's uh uh so for South Georgia uh, just to give you an idea of what it's like the best description I had was that someone's chopped off the top of the Alps dumped it in the sea and filled it with wildlife so one of my highlights was going to St Andrews Bay where they have one of the world's largest king penguin colonies. And you get there and it's this black sand beach with a glacier behind it and there is nothing but king penguins. And you walk along it and you think the colony's going to end and there's more penguins. And then you go over the hill and you're like, no, no, there's still more penguins. Uh, it's just <laughs> phenomenal to see them all. They do smell quite a bit, uh, and they're pretty noisy. I was going to say, it's phenomenal to Can see them. Can you still smell them now? Is, is is that the thing that you see? You're like, oh, that's the south, that's the South Georgia penguin right there. I can smell that already. Uh, it's definitely a smell I won't forget. <laughs> so you know, you're walking around these penguins. Yeah, you know, a how big are they? Are, are are king? I'm assuming by king penguin, they're pretty big. Uh, and are they friendly? Like, do they run away from you? Do they come towards you? Do they try and nip at you? Uh, you know, you're this sort of, I'm sure obviously they do see people, but you're a rare occurrence. So, so what's that like? How do they interact with you? Uh, so they're, they're pretty tall, actually. They're surprisingly big. And you, you're supposed to stay at least six metres away from the wildlife. The idea is that we're not meant to influence their behaviour. But they, they don't often see people. It's a pretty hard place to get to South Georgia. It takes like five days on a ship just to sail there from the Falklands. And so they, they have very little, limited interaction with people. And so they come up to you almost like, you're a penguin. You're a very funny looking penguin. I'm not sure you are. And then they get, get a bit closer and like, nah, you're not a penguin. And walk off. And you're like, okay, fine. <laughs> I haven't been accepted into the colony. Uh, I tried. Sl- slightly, <laughs> slightly harder application process that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I haven't figured out yet. <laughs> yeah. You can't be like, I like you, penguins. Come closer, come back. You know, um, I've heard about you in my application. Please be my friend. And so you're talking about getting into South Georgia because I-, I want to talk about how you got there because I know uh, Dr. Clara Weaver during COVID they had to take the the Attenborough all the way from the UK down to to Rothera Station. Yeah, so I flew from the Falkland, to the Falklands and then they have a fishery patrol vessel called uh, the Faros, which is quite a small ship, 
it's uh, designed to actually check out lighthouses up in Scotland, but they now use it down in South Georgia in some of the roughest seas, which is <laughs> quite an experience. So I don't think I've ever felt so ill. Uh, but really, really great crew. Uh, I had a lot of fun with them. Um, they they take the whole team across to South Georgia. So that's how it, it normally works outside of COVID. Fantastic. So uh, we haven't had a bad point. I need a bad point about oh, South Georgia. Point. Come on, there's got to have been a few. Uh, I think probably that was my first Christmas away from home. That was I was just going to say, that was, your, that was the first stint when you were away, wasn't it, as well? So yeah. it possibly was more emotional. Yeah, so that, that definitely hit home. And also, when you get there, you have about 10 days of handover with the other doctor. And then they sail away on that ship, uh, on the barrel support here. And it's that sudden realisation that, oh, I am a very long way away from home. And I'm suddenly responsible for all these people was a bit of a scary moment it suddenly hits you that reality of being an expedition doctor in basically in the middle of nowhere <laughs> it is that that there is a moment actually I, I mean I have this kind of building anticipation um as an expedition's kind of coming together and we we finally land in country and it is when once you realize you're there and for us it'll usually be you know you're on a boat or you're heading into the jungle or you know we're heading out on the snowmobiles here um there's a point, there's just a, a geographical point that you pass when you just, this pit of your stomach just kind of shouts. Yeah, that's it. You've just taken all responsibility now. And from this point onwards, all of these heads are, are on you. Um, and it is a very daunting moment because at that point, you really haven't got to know anything about anybody um, when we started. And you, you feel very, very insecure about the fact, good God, I, am I completely out of my depth? You know, and you have to just kind of go back through and the training starts to kick in and everything goes. But um, but it is a horrible moment. And I guess if that was your first real long expedition um, and you're working away for the first time, that must have been an incredibly, uh, yeah, touchy experience when you, uh, at, at that moment, I can, I can imagine. So you went from South Georgia and then you were on the Atterborough. How was that? Yeah, it's a very... Uh very swanky new ship <laughs> you know it's funny because the uh the david attenborough was originally named by the british public as boaty mcboatface yeah uh, yeah <laughs> i still believe that is the true name of the attenborough the crew now i think everybody knows it and i'm pretty sure what the crew yeah. actually call it boaty mcboatface uh, you're not wrong <laughs> uh it is definitely fond fondly known as boaty mcboatface still <laughs> <laughs> Trust the British public to come up with something like that. That was such a different experience. Uh, dealing with uh, seafarers, a completely different set of people, great set of people, a great crew. But I came onto a crew that was at the end of their expedition. So they, they'd already done nearly their whole three months, and so they were about to go home. So there was me getting on the, the SDA, or the Sir David Attenborough, or Boating at Boatface. And there was me all really excited. Like, oh my God, this is going to be amazing. And they're all like, oh, no, we're done. We just want to go home. It was a very different kind of energy. <laughs> so oh. I felt like this little kid at Christmas and they weren't, they weren't quite there. Um, they were a really, really great crew though. They, they were definitely very welcoming. Um, but the ship was great because we got to see different places. Suddenly I had been in one spot in South Georgia really and we got to sail up and down the coast a little bit as it did uh, various tasks it needed to do in terms of science 
uh, we went to the, the smallest research station that bats have, which is Bird Island. It's on a tiny rock. Uh, if you if you think <laughs> the places that we've been to in the middle of nowhere, this is a tiny rock that has a team of four people in winter. That, that's it. And they're there. With, You've really got to like uh, the people that you're with then, I'm you, sure. Yeah, you really do. And you really have to like the wildlife that's there. They have a lot of fur seals, which are pretty aggressive. Their whole, the beach surrounding the research station is just filled with these seals, which in breeding season, they're very aggressive and territorial, which is terrifying. Uh, and then you go higher up and of this island and there's, loads of different albatross mostly the wandering albatross which definitely was a highlight for me while i was on the ship getting to go and see bird island which is unusual for lots of doctors and seeing these albatross up close they are enormous like half the size of me it's just absolutely mind-blowing how huge these birds are fantastic and the wandering albatross if i'm not right it's the one that can cross entire oceans basically in one go they have a wingspan which is, is so yeah. great that they just you know fly up on, on, on thermals yeah so their wingspan is three meters jesus christ wow yeah okay yeah, yeah i actually watched a document an attenborough documentary not so long ago and it was it was the chicks um albatross chicks and it was talking about that they just sit and wait to take flight they just have to wait and they have to get far enough out so they're not eaten by the seals waiting for them um on the coastline Jesus. and they're just they're all just sitting there with these downy feathers blowing out in the wind waiting waiting for enough lift to just go for it and um and and, and just try and they say once they take off that they're, they're not landing for something like five years so i'm guessing they're gonna stop in places um along the way but they're certainly not going to re return to the beaches where they breed for five or six years which i thought was pretty uh, pretty incredible um no, it's always nice to... They're the proper expeditioners right there, you know, five, yeah. five year missions away. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I would, I would love to um, love to be able to do that. Absolutely. Um, so, the, so the dynamic changed, obviously. Um, you're now on a boat. Things were a little bit different. Um, how did you find the day-to-day -day living in, in confined quarters? Because living on boats are relatively confined, no matter how swanky they are. Um, you, you, you really do kind of drop yourself into your bunk area and that's uh that's your life how did you find that yeah and also the tricky bit is the doctor's cabin is it's very nice but it's literally opposite the surgery it's one of the shortest commutes to work i've ever had so you just cross the corridor uh but you you definitely had to make an effort to get out go other places try and keep yourself a bit sane and uh, it's not always easy to do when the boat's rocking around across particularly the drake's passage that's renowned for being uh having white frost seas <laughs> uh, and so it can be a bit difficult but thankfully the, the time I was doing it we got to go to different places and I uh, managed to get off when we got to Third Island and tried to make the most of those opportunities and then again when we called in at the Falklands I could we could get off we could walk down to the local beach that was there and um, go on the white sands and see the dolphins playing in the surf so it, yeah that was pretty good yeah, it's, it sounds horrific. I must admit, the, <laughs> it was it a hard really life. does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really. I mean, okay, so so you then from this point are sailing down to the the large research station. Um, how long did that journey? How long were you on the um, the boat for? So I was on for about five weeks, but this okay. was all during COVID time. So we were still having to quarantine any staff coming south. 
So while on the boat, the crew were changing over. So we actually had to stay in the Falklands for a significant amount of that period while um, the outgoing crew slowly went home, but the incoming crew had finished their quarantine and then could come on the boat. So actually the sail from the Falklands to Rothera was not that long. We uh, I think it was about five days. So it wasn't that long at all. It depends on how many places they need to stop off along the way in order to carry out the science that has to be to do via the ship. Okay. Okay. And uh, can you paint us a picture then of your arrival? <laughs> so my arrival was not quite where I wanted it to be. I envisaged <laughs> this uh, turning up and it all being great and seeing Clara, who was still out there, and uh, we're we were friends somewhere we worked before and having this great big hug and having a wonderful handover and that's not what happened what happened was <laughs> that uh two days before our arrival i ended up with a patient who was infectious and not covid but the whole uh base assumed it was covid and got very panicky because they didn't want covid on station we were trying to keep it out of antarctica at that point and rules of being on a ship and in port is if you have someone that's infectious, you need to quarantine for two days. So the ship came in, we had to quarantine, we had to keep the ship and base separate. Either went into quarantine on the base until they could just establish that we weren't going to be mixing anything on space because it would just impact operations uh, massively and we couldn't afford to have that happen. So, it, yeah, sadly, it wasn't quite the arrival I wanted, but oh, this is what happens on expedition, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> you, yeah, they uh, never go as planned. these challenges and these terrible stages. Yeah, they never go as planned. And no. um, so, so I mean, I, I know very little about um, about the unit. So how, how big is it? How many people are there? You know, what's the day-to-day, -day, what's the day-to-day -day life as, as the dock? So Rothera is the biggest station. In winter, we had a team of 23, but in summer, it can go up to 160. So a lot wow. more of the science is happening in summer. You've got a lot more field parties coming in and then going out to other places on the continent. It's kind of like a, a hub where people come, they prep all their, what they need to do for their science, and then they go on further into the field. So that's why we have a lot more people. Um, and you can make the most of the 24-hour daylight in summer. Whereas in winter, obviously, the conditions are far more harsh. The planes aren't flying, so they can't take people further into the continent. So any science that happens in winter is what happens on the base. And a large part of what happens in winter is also just keeping the, that base running and uh, lots of the instruments running that are collecting data all year round. So yeah. that's why you have this team of 23. And as I said earlier, there are a mix of people. There's scientists there, but you have lots of people that are just making, keeping the base going, really. Yeah. How did you, how you, you touched there on the, the darkness and, and sunlight. You know, we, right now we have 24 hours of sunlight um, and equally we have our 24 hours of darkness, but we have about three months uh, of each. Um, I didn't start to really become affected by the darkness until I lived here about four years because it was a bit of a novelty in the beginning um and it didn't particularly affect me psychologically or physiologically i was i was fine but now i really notice a drop in energy a drop in interest in in those dark periods and they're actually perfect because it lines up really with some expeditions we have so i can get out of norway um but it's very depressing the darkness is depressing i mean how did you feel how did how did you handle the the 
because it's trying to explain it to someone doesn't really work, does it? It is literally pitch black dark all the time. You you live in twilight for months on end. You know how how did you handle that? It is definitely very difficult. I think the keyword there was twilight. Uh, Rother is slightly more north than people think. It's not the South Pole itself. So for us, we had six weeks where the sun didn't come above the horizon. You still get a kind of twilight sort of light for about a few hours in the middle of the day, and that is your daytime, as it were. But either side of those six weeks, you you have some daylight, but it's only a few hours. So it's really difficult to get out and uh, make the most of where you are. Particularly for us, also, the weather was very poor. So if it was, yeah, you just had a few few good days. Other days, the winds were so strong, like 50, 60 knot winds blowing through and then bringing loads of snow and all sorts. That was really, really challenging. And I certainly noticed myself and lots of my team, it, it does make people tired, as you say. It certainly affects all your hormones. They go a bit out of whack. Your yeah. sleep patterns are often disrupted. So lots of people really struggle with sleep and get insomnia. And that also then has a further impact on their energy and their mood. Mood mm. is tricky. You can get quite irritable, grouchy, a little bit sad. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's really tough. I yeah. was so lucky in that the team I was with were quite a cohesive bunch. And so we got on reasonably well and that, that definitely helped. But, but it's, it's not easy <laughs> no it's it's really not and that it, it does affect especially in that team dynamic it, it is an issue because the whole point of it is that you you are having to work together we see this on expeditions constantly this kind of the building up and formations of teams and and how humans interact with each other and that kind of almost micro psychology of the expedition and when people are coming together and, and learning to work with each other and realigning themselves in the hierarchy of who kind of sits where and this natural progression and natural process we go through as humans when we when we meet up but it really is magnified when environmental factors are so strong like that 24-hour darkness or or 24-hour sunshine because the flip side is pretty different isn't it because when the sun comes back all of a sudden you have this extra energy that you don't normally have when you're in the UK and when you finish work if it's 6 p.m or 8 p.m and it's full sun outside, all of a sudden you feel like, oh, I could, we could go for a walk. We could maybe uh, go and explore over there and, and do this. And you find yourself at three o'clock in the morning acting like it's, you know, dinner time. Yeah, Which expands. Exactly, exactly that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it's definitely, the highs are high and the lows are low out there, I think, because of all of that. Uh, but it, it's, it's worth it for those highs, I think. And there's, there's a lot to be said about that. That darkness is also quite a magical time in a way. The sunsets and the sunrises you get down there are phenomenal. The beautiful colours. Everyone's like, oh, Antarctica is only blue or white. But it's not true. In winter, mm. there's so many different colours. You get um, beautiful things like nacreous clouds, which are clouds that have special ice crystals in them. And the way they reflect the light gives this sort of iridescence to the sky. And things like that are beautiful and then there's the night skies as well that, seeing that many stars yeah. down there is just out of this world yeah. phenomenal so one of the major reasons i went to the arctic circle apart from of course learning how to survive and work there was to see the northern lights it's one of those things that you just want to see 
And that one night that the Northern Lights actually did come out, apparently I was fast asleep on the sofa and no one could wake me up. I don't actually think they tried hard enough though because I would have literally been dragging people out the door to see these. Uh, but they showed me photos the next day and I hope to be able to see them uh, with my own eyes soon. But the Northern Lights also have uh, a counterpart, the Southern Lights, uh, Aurora Australis um, in Antarctica. And I'm wondering, did you actually get to see yeah. those? Is that something which you can see from the bases uh, or from the boats? I uh, no, sadly not. So Rothera is, uh, like I say, it's a bit more north than people think. So to get the uh, aurora there is a little bit rare. It's quite difficult. But, um, my friend managed to sort of capture it on a time lapse, a time lapse of the night sky. She got a brief sort of green glow, but we couldn't see it. So she didn't wake you up for that either, did she? Yeah, she let you sleep through that one. <laughs> no. <it's... laughs> I was actually there with her when we were doing the time lapse, so we were probably too busy nattering. And uh, no, we um, didn't see it with the naked eye. Like I said, the, the camera managed to just about pick out this green glow, but that was it. No. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately not. It looks incredible. You know, Matt sends me these photos all the time uh, of the Northern Lights. And I'm like, Jesus, you know, this is, this is what I want to see. You know, this, this is what you see out of your bedroom every day. And, that, and that's pretty incredible. But now going back to when you're at university, you're studying to be a doctor and you were in the university air squadron within the Royal Air Force Reserves and you did some flight training with them on a, you know, a turboprop grob tutor, a pretty cool aircraft. And then you go down to Antarctica and I was looking through your photos and there you are in the co-pilot seat of a twin otter aircraft. And for people that don't realize what this is, it's a pretty cool plane. It lands with skis anywhere uh, in Antarctica where you know it's flat enough that they can land. And these pilots just fly all over the continent. There's no air traffic controls as far as I'm aware. And they just go and they drop scientists off and they drop equipment off. And you were there able to fly alongside them. Yeah, that was absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, the Twin Otters were definitely one of my favourite parts of Rother. I absolutely loved it. Uh, I would like to point out there was a real pilot in the plane. It wasn't just me left to my own devices. Uh, oh, that's a shame. <laughs> Uh, no, I got some phenomenal flights. And that's definitely some, a highlight to me was flying over uh, the continent and you're looking down and leaving the little island we're on because my, my first flight came quite soon after uh, winter. So I've been stuck in this base for so long, I couldn't really get out and I was just a little bit claustrophobic and needing a bit of freedom. And to get in that plane and just see that base disappearing and be like, ah, oh, yes, I've made it, I've escaped, was... Um, phenomenal uh, looking down and seeing that sort of sapphire blue sea and then that sparkling white of all those icebergs just floating in the water was amazing and then you hit the continent oh, and it's just flat white as far as you can see it's amazing but yeah, wow. it's a very hard thing to describe and there's a lot of countries that have bases down in uh, Antarctica. There's uh, McMurdo, which is the American base. You've got uh, ALE, which operates out of Union Glacier. Uh, and there, there are people doing stuff all over the continent. But otherwise, you know, I'm sure it's such a big place that you do often feel like you're alone out there. You look down and it's, it's just you, basically. So you see the shadow of the aircraft and that's it. Yeah, basically. Uh, we, well, we have four twin otters and they're all doing different uh, bits in summer so they might be taking more fuel out to our depot stations or they might be taking scientists and their field parties out to various locations to conduct the science that they need to take um, carry out so one of my trips was actually taking a spare part to a team out on the continent itself 
so we flew for a good eight hours it's yeah a really long time um thankfully the pilot was with a really great chat i was gonna say it's a very long <laughs> flight for the <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> a long time <laughs> uh, wow. that's great I, I, I mean where on earth do you go now what what <laughs> That is a question I don't quite know the answer to. Um, I mean, I guess, I guess most importantly, how was the coming back home? How did that go? And back into hospital life, I guess, you know, how did, how did that? No, feel? so I, I haven't actually gone back to work quite yet. They kind oh. of encourage you to take some time to sort of recover. It's a very long time away and you have to remember that you've been on call 24 seven, essentially. And for a large part of that, a good year I was the only doctor I was doctor nurse dentist radio for everything and so that takes its toll and mm. the second season also we changed our rules around covid covid uh we felt that the risk was exceptionally small for anyone that is critically unwell so quarantining uh was stopped instead we were just pcr testing so covid got to antarctica and I got covid there so that COVID plus being post-winter was a uh, not a great combination. So I was exceptionally tired when I got home. And the real world is overwhelming, very overstimulating when you've just been in a very tiny base with very few people and there's not this overwhelming stimulus is probably the best way of saying it. So you come back and we landed in Punta Arenas in the south of Chile and I was with some of my other teammates uh, who'd wintered with me and I just remember feeling exhausted at the end of every day because there's so much your brain can meet um, computes on a daily basis that you just don't realize like it's constantly hearing the traffic hearing the birds seeing all these people taking that and just filtering it out and your brain hasn't had to do that in a long time and then there's things like remembering to take your do you know who i am i'm dr boyce i was like what is this this is uh, <laughs> i've enjoyed not paying for this <laughs> and then um, you also have to take keys and you have to think about what you're going to eat of course down there we had a chef and your meals were made for you you just turned up at meal times and suddenly you're having to deal with all these uh, decision making and so by the end of it you you are tired it's taken a long time i think it's only in the last few weeks i felt more myself and more like a functioning adult again so that's taken a while um i'm about to start a job though in august so i'm going to be another clinical fellow again uh, i seem to be the eternal clinical fellow at the moment uh, so i'll be starting back in a and e but i'm moving up to inverness so that i can have the mountains on my doorstep enjoy my freedom i'm not stuck on a base so i can actually get out into the hills which would be great and alongside that clinical fellow post i'll be doing my mountain medicine diploma and then taking it from there really seeing what other expeditions come up and see where the next adventure is fantastic that that sounds like a perfect plan for the future you know i love scotland you know abby boy got the king gorms right there it's great for climbs great just to go for a hike as well uh you can jump across to Norway and come visit us in the Arctic. But what we haven't talked about, and I think it's, yeah. you know, in terms of the training that the BAS provides you, is, you know, there's a mental strain and, and the responsibility that you have as a doctor down there for so long. You know, how did the build-up training go? Um, 
you know, you've got the base in Cambridge for Baz. Uh, you know, what did they do to prepare you for, for going down somewhere, which, you know, most people, it's totally out of their everyday life. Yeah, so Baz's HQ is in Cambridge, but Baz Moor actually run out of Plymouth. So we, all the doctors go there for six months for training. Because as I mentioned before, you are not just doctor, you're dentist, you're nurse, you're radiographer. And so there's a lot of skills they need to give you before you go. So that six month period is um, a mixture of them running courses. So we did, uh, I think it's a whole week of dentistry because it is such a big proportion of your work down there. Uh, we learned how to use our x-ray machine, how to take different x-rays. We did um, days practicing our suture skills, our wound care management. And then a lot of the rest of the time is down to you and where you think your weaker areas are and how you address that. So you could arrange to spend time in different clinics. Like I went to ENT, I spent time with plastics, I went to ophthalmology clinics. And then you also spend your time in Derriford A&E as well, trying to manage patients that you think are likely to see down south. So it's it's quite a privileged position, actually, because you get to pick and choose which patients you're going to see. There's no point you ending up with poor little Doris who's been on the floor all night because it's just not something you're going to deal with down south. So we try and find the younger patients that maybe had the sort of... Um, MSK type injuries and minors or they'd broken their leg or the trauma cause in recess um, and tailor it to what we needed to build up our skills before we went. Obviously you walk into the patient's room with your you know Antarctic parka on and say I, I'm a PASMO doctor excuse me this is my patient now. Uh, <laughs> a small colony of penguins following around <laughs> after you. Yeah. Um, but did you do any did you do any wilderness skills training before you left? Did you learn snowmobiles? Did you learn um, you know, general kind of wilderness skills or are there something that's kind of a, an expectation you already had an interest in before you applied for the job or how does that work? Because you are active, right? You're pretty mobile whilst you're on base. Yeah, so it's a, a little bit of both. Um, I had done the sort of expedition wilderness medicine course before. I Then when you go and you do training with bass before you deploy and that's everyone going south gets that same sort of training that gives you a basic set of uh, wind skills although we because it was covid they couldn't uh go to their usual sort of adventure place that they take people in order to learn rope skills so we ended up having to learn how to do a crevasse rescue on a very flat cambridge uh cricket pitch in the middle of summer which was <laughs> not quite a, a representation of what we were going to somewhat but, imagination again, required yeah <laughs> exactly but then they run through a whole course of training once you're actually there in the, in on the ice so yeah. at Rodder we have a lot of field guides that have this full training program for you so you, again you go through what you would need to do for crevasse rescue you go through about how to use the skidoo also linking up skidoos when you are traveling across glaciated terrain so that um you you have to link yeah. two up so that if one falls down yeah. you can pull the other one out um and they go through sort of basic winter skills as well. So how to use your crampons, how to use your ice axe, how to rope up together, which is, again, is something I was fortunate enough. I'd done a little bit up at Glenmore Lodge because it's something I'd be interested in. And I had plans on doing a mountaineering course before I went, but unfortunately COVID, COVID. got away as always and yeah. ruined all the fun again. <laughs> yeah. So uh, no, but Bass have to do that in order to make sure everyone's safe down there. Yeah. 
fantastic. How did you feel it was enough? Did you feel you came across elements where you were actually out there working, where you think, God, I um, I wish I knew more about about living in places like this, as opposed to the medicine side? Because you appear to have been given ample opportunity to jump in and out of the medical training as much as you will in that six months. Was there times when you were when you were out there on the ground when you felt you were you were kind of exposed to the elements you were very aware of of where you were and how little time you spent in those environments or um not not particularly because our our field guys are fantastic they get yeah. they get good training and they've usually got experience working in glaciated terrain so they were great and you you can't go beyond a small area without them so they were fantastic and also as the doctor you are you tend to be on base so if there's going to be an emergency off base, well, it's the field guys that are going to lead that. You're going to give them advice over a radio because you you need to be back managing the surgery and dealing with, uh, and sort of setting it up and getting ready there. Yeah. So uh, no, I think I would have liked to have learnt more purely for my own interest. Um, but no, the, the field guys are fantastic. Wonderful. 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 Well, I mean that it was. A truly incredible conversation. I, I feel like we need to do another one at some point in uh, in a year's time and see what on earth you've been up to for the next twelve months. Um, you know, little drops in. Oh, we were we were in the twin otter flying. And, you know, there's there's a lot of elements of this chat that I would love to expand on. Um, it's it's very hard to kind of sum up sixteen months of your life in a in a small podcast. <laughs> yeah, it I'm really sure is. There's loads more to talk about. <laughs> Becky, thank you so much for coming on the podcast with us. It's been an absolute pleasure to, to hear you talk about it. We are so excited to hear about what comes next for you. So we're going to have to have you back to have another episode on, on what's going on in, in your adventurous life. Is there something, just to close, what you would recommend, any advice you'd give to somebody that wants to go down to work on Antarctica as well? I think is uh, go for it. Just yeah i i didn't believe it was possible for me to go and i took a punt but um yeah just do it get out there amazing just do it i think that's epic advice actually there's so many people who sit on the fence looking for a reason to say yes or say no but ultimately just just do it you, put your you name down and give it a go regret you regret the things you don't do rather than the things you do yeah on the whole but i mean you could you could regret 16 months is a long time to regret a bad choice it's, uh, it's just, <laughs> <laughs> just, just put it out there. <laughs> yeah. sorry that's it bye <laughs> that's it you know oh my god but it sounds like you had an incredible time and thank you again so much for taking the time to, to come on the podcast and talk to us it's been a pleasure to have you it's been a Guys, thank you ever so much for joining us on another Medicine on the Frontier, a unique expeditions podcast. What an amazing one it was. Really looking forward to the next one. Luke, thanks as always, buddy. Matt, I really enjoyed this episode. You know, Antarctica is somewhere I really want to go. And just hearing these stories, it's, it's just fueled me up even more. And I hope it's fueled up our listeners as well to want to go down and explore that part of the world. Please do follow along with Becky's adventures at RB Flymed and follow us on Instagram at Medicine on the Frontier, as well as our personal Instagram, which are all linked in the description. 
Coming up next time on Medicine on the Frontier, we're going to be joined by Dr. Matt Lee and Dr. Lydia Potter, who have both completed their F2 foundation training and are now going on to see how they can become better climate activists within the healthcare setting. They're also both part of the RNLI boat crew and we're very excited to have them on the podcast. So make sure you tune into that episode and every other episode in this series as we explore Medicine on the Frontier. Thank you.